Hello my friends, Happy New Year and welcome to The Natural High, which is a podcast dedicated to the pursuit of happiness in all its glorious forms. I can't believe how lucky I am to be kicking the year off with such a good interview because this week I speak to the quite remarkable Adam Smith. A couple of weeks ago, my amazing wife, who flirts with social media so that I don't have to, pointed me in the direction of a LinkedIn post which read, 2010, age 25, I was found in a field pronounced dead at the scene by the police with only cocaine keeping my heart beating, attempted suicide after suffering from substance abuse, institutionalised into care, remanded to prison and sectioned into a mental health home from the age of 10 experienced homelessness, self-harm and all forms of abuse. I was a mess. 2020, 10 years later, age 35, I have two beautiful children, bought my first house on the east coast of the UK, created a project that went global, filming with celebrities, conducting speeches across the world, fed millions and prevented thousands of tonnes of food from becoming waste. Featured on the front cover of The Big Issue, created a zero-waste beer with Northern Monk, done a TEDx, no longer addicted to substances, inspired hundreds of environmental projects worldwide, opened a raw vegan restaurant using only surplus food with only children in the kitchen. The next time you see someone suffering, no matter what, don't walk past them. You never know whom they may become. I owe my gratitude to so many that gave me the opportunity and believed in me when I needed it most. Thank you. And that's Adam Smith, the amazing Adam Smith who I'm talking to this week. As Adam told me at the start of this chat, which has sadly been lost in the digital ether, the post got millions of views and has generated huge publicity in general with luminaries such as Danny Boyle approaching him about his story. And it really is a quite amazing story. As I mentioned, I lost a few minutes at the start where he talked about one truly awful childhood experience in particular, which left him with undiagnosed trauma for many years and sent him on that extremely destructive spiral in his early life, which he talks about in detail. But my first question was about whether he considered himself to be a happy man now. Before I leave you, please feel free to reach out to Adam about the Real Junk Food Project if you want to get involved in this amazing cause at trjfp.com that's trjfp.com and you can find out all about this episode by going to thenaturalhighclub.com forward slash adam smith enjoy the show (sighs) the natural high i don't understand the capacity of being happy i am I understand to be aroused, hunger or anxious, and that's the only three emotions that I kind of suffer. Um, and happiness and sad, I don't quite understand. And and so I'm I'm not happy, but I'm not unhappy. Um, but I just think mentally, I think I'm the, probably the most uh, peaceful and centered that I've ever been in my in my entire life, given everything that's happened to me in my past. And so yeah, I'm in a good place. It's incredible. So all of these amazing things have come about as as well. Actually, I saw that you've you've done quite a bit of press in the past. I think you spoke to the Guardian, the BBC, the Independent. That all came before this LinkedIn post, right? Yeah, absolutely. I've done all sorts from CNN, Al Jazeera, um, film with Jamie Oliver, Hugh Fillion, what you stole. There's there's probably nobody in the media world that I've not uh, worked with um, over the past seven years of the project. Uh, we've had a lot of ex- ex- attention and exposure because of the amazing things that it does. Um, but yeah, the LinkedIn post especially has taken it to a whole new level. 
you just told me that Danny Boyle's interested in making a film with you. You did 17 podcasts yesterday, all as a consequence of this LinkedIn post. What I think, I don't know if you've tried to boil it down yourself as to why there is so much interest. And as you say, different people put, pull different parts out of it. I think it's the whole arc, which is amazing. The odyssey, the amazing journey that you've been on. And the fact that you've yeah. you've you've generated all this strength through adversity, which most many to most people I don't believe would. But what I think it is more than anything is your honesty. I've spoken to a fair few recovered alcoholics and addicts, in, you know, people that have recovered from addiction in my time. And there always seems to be like a, an at times brutal, but really beautiful honesty about them, which I find really sets them free in a way. I find that people have recovered from this sort of adversity. There's a freedom about them if they've come out the other end. They don't hide behind the bullshit, which so many people do to make themselves sound good. It's just, this is me. This is my story. This is the, this is the honest, vulnerable, uh, me and 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 you know take it or leave it do you find that being transparent about your experiences does set you free in a way i think um uh, the, one of the quotes that i put on the linkedin post um it is a funny backstory to it. it says allow yourself to think and dream in unlimited ways um that was actually from a fortune cookie that i got whilst i was uh, going to australia before the project even started and um we're going to use it as a kind of quote in my book to kind of highlight the absurdity of it because it's not like gandhi or uh you know a, a famous mm. let's give the quote it was just in a fortune cookie but i think the key message behind that isn't the um think and dream in limited ways i think it's the allow yourself and when you talk about people who have been in recovery or to the depths that i've been to to allow yourself to be vulnerable, to allow yourself to take control, to allow yourself to accept that you're not always right and that your viewpoints are not going to be shared by everybody. And to allow yourself to say that I'm going to make myself into a better person by not going to those places again is an incredibly powerful thing. Now, there's not very many people on the planet that have tried to commit suicide, spent 10 to 16 hours in a car, being smashed out of a vehicle by the police, only have survived because they've had illegal drugs in their system, just keeping the heart beating, and then walk up three days later in a hospital and not and realise that they're not dead. There's not many people that have been to that stage, and I've been there and I've come back from it. And so I will never be in that position ever again. So I think before I started to do trauma therapy um, in the last couple of years to deal with a lot of those issues and to make myself a better person and a better CEO and a, a, a better father. And... A lot of it was that I was so disassociated with that person. So I could just quite openly and blase talk about this individual that had been abused and committed suicide. Right. And it's only when I've started to really attach myself back to that boy, because I was a child, um, that I've started to realize how these, I, I feel like I've got more to offer now than just a story. Um, I spoke to many people yesterday about um, dealing with the point of trauma in young people and how that affects them sometimes up to 10 years later. To, you know, some people become homeless and addicted to drugs and commit suicide. And it's, and it's not because of a consequence of something they've uh, done uh, immediately before that. It's usually to do with something that happened at the point of trauma up to 10 years before. And I had that point of trauma, you know, I had an incident where my dad beat and raped my mum on Christmas morning on my little sister's bed and I was woken by the second past all my presence. Um, I still struggle to accept compliments from people because I had to walk past all my Christmas presents and I never got to open them. And that was in 1995. You know, I was a 10-year-old boy. So if you can Jeez. if you trauma if you can process trauma and, and also as well um the, the the other key thing as well is the spectrum side of things so i was always seen as a naughty boy that was uh, very smart 
um, uh, an angry, smart kid I was always referred to. And nobody picked on the fact... The rebel. Yeah, nobody ever picked up on the fact that, you know, I, I could sit in a classroom and do any exam you asked me to do. I could write anything you want me to write. I could do any sums you wanted me to do. But I just could, I just didn't care. It, it didn't fit into my way of thinking. And, and, and I went to... Mm solve the world and solve global problems even from the age of like nine ten years old and there's some really uh, funny stories in my book about things that I did even as a young age that nobody even picked up on until it was only around two years ago when I got diagnosed so now that I've processed a lot of that trauma and dealt with it I'm now I have a very very clear and open mind now and the, the kind of spectrum side of things has kind of taken over so I'm now able to use my brain to do the things that I knew I could do as a child. So my memory is incredible. Um, I can remember numbers and words and, 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 and figures. You know, I can just reel them off without even thinking about it. I can remember music. I can listen to a song. I can tell you every instrument it played. And I can tell you every beat, everything. <laughs> do this now. So I feel like there's, there's, even though you try to pinpoint exactly why there may be a story to it, I know that also there's a, there's a part of it that's quite unique in the sense that there's not many people that will be able to go to those depths and come round and do the things that I can do. And, you know, I set out to yeah. the world when I was found dead. I said, I said fuck it, I'm just going to go feed the world and, and that's what I want to do. And whatever I've ever set my heart to, I've managed to achieve. And obviously I haven't fed the world yet, but I'm not going to stop doing it. But people who come from those situations, probably people that you've spoken to, then maybe don't go on to have huge life goals they kind of kind of accept the fact that they're alive and that they're healthy and well and that just wasn't enough for me because of the capacity of my brain and the the issues that i had with the kind of the, the autism and the high functioning stuff um which has then obviously then allowed me to go on to do the things that i've i've gone on to done so i i guess it's just this incredible story of a of a of a, a kid that you know, probably a lot of other children are suffering from lots of neurotypical disorders and bad behavior and ADHD and all these things that, you know, that children are labeled with these days, but really they just needed to channel their energy and they've probably got some form of trauma in their, you know, in their lives and maybe it's holding them back. Yeah. Maybe we just don't focus enough on that. So that maybe that's hopefully that, you know, what good can come of this is that I can, what a guy. Yeah. That I can hope. But you know, another thing about it, another thing about it is that when you add the ingredient of kindness, I think you, you seem to me like you've got an innate kindness about you as well, which yep. is some, it's a, it's a really motivating factor in your life. It says it all over the buildings that we have all the projects uh, is hashtag kindness. We've got kindness warehouse, the kindness share houses. We have kindness into schools. We have kindness catering. Everything was about kindness. And I think the key message about kindness once again is, people misinterpret what we're trying to say to people when we say be kind or kindness. It's not necessarily about being kind to others and your neighbor and your friends and your family. It's about being kind to yourself first and foremost, because mm. we were all kind to ourselves. Imagine how we would you know, um, uh, react with other people around the world. Yep. And I truly believe that's where it starts. And so kindness for me is, it was a it was a it was a, a selfish thing if anything it was actually i need to learn how to be kind to myself i need to learn how to uh, be a better person to how to process my trauma to stop making mistakes to stop hurting people to stop hurting myself and only then can i go out and feed the world because when i set out to feed the world i still hadn't dealt with a lot of these issues and i could see that the project was suffering because of the issues that i had wow and therefore it was like well i need to go be kind to myself and now when people come in it's like oh you know we've got to be kind to everybody it's like no 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 no. i've never told you to be kind to anybody all i've ever said is be kind to yourself and it's one of the most empowering things that you can say to somebody 
is I don't care how you are with other people. I don't care about your opinions. I don't care if you voted Brexit. I don't care if you don't support Black Lives Matters. I don't care about that. I just ask you to be kind and be a kind person, be kind to yourself. And, and the difference it makes how people interact with one another is incredible because we've got such a diverse you know, hundreds of volunteers that come into our project and we constantly remind them about being kind to themselves and we've got people here with tags on them that have been in prison from lesbians that have been in the army to we've got an Asian girl here today who's just lost a mother and father during COVID. Every single one of them is kind. Wow. That is absolutely incredible. I want to give some context to it because obviously it sounds like you're going to become one of the most famous men in the world and everybody's going to know your story. But just just to give my audience some context, my wife alerted me to a post that you put on LinkedIn. I think um, I think it was LinkedIn, right? Yeah, it was LinkedIn, wasn't it? Uh, I was I was totally bowled over by the story. In a nutshell, you went from being um, almost destitute, really, and, and ruled by addiction to a vibrant business owner, philanthropist, TEDx speaker, which I definitely want to talk about, and a family man in the space of a decade. Uh, just and, and just to give a taster of your message, it starts with the following: 2010, age 25, I was found in a field, pronounced dead at the scene by police, with only cocaine keeping my heart beating. I, I don't want you to. I, I mean, you've as you said, you've done lots of trauma therapy. I don't want you to um, talk about it in. Two, in more in more detail than you're comfortable with but can you tell me how you got to that point in your life you know as briefly or as in detail as you like it's really really simple there was a point of trauma that wasn't dealt with back at the age of 10 years old and i suffered something mm. that um, should never have been witnessed to i was exposed to an adult world i um i and then after that i mean i'm like i said i'm, I'm, I'm off the back of the um linkedin post i've, I've, had, I've, I've had a friend come forward who's going to co-author my book with me and we've put things into chapters and we started writing the first 10 years of my life and then in the next 10 years after the trauma. And it's, it's quite scary to think that I've got a seven-year-old boy and he's three years away from being the age that I was when these things started happening to me. But to think wow. would he wouldn't have an inkling of some of the things that I went through. So things from sexual experiences to abuse to watching my mum and dad go through a divorce to watching domestic violence to everything that happened at that time. And then obviously as I was growing up, I started running away from home. I started getting into drugs and alcohol. I uh, mm. That was like an escape. Well, uh, th I mean, yeah, I mean, I was sectioned into care. I was sectioned into mental health. I held somebody hostage in a classroom and sliced the throat and got sectioned into a mental health hospital. I mean, this was all pre 20 years old. Um, but this was the manifestation of all this trauma that had happened to you, yeah. which you were just, which was I, coming out. I, I turned into a shithead person you know i were cheating on partners i would um uh, friends wouldn't invite me out because you know if they wanted to go for a quiet drink i'd end up having a three-day binge and getting on a flight to thailand um and that <laughs> happened you know um if they wanted to sit around and play on the computer and smoke some weed i'd end up buying tons of cocaine and overdosing on ecstasy you know i, I just took it too far wow. I, wasn't, I wasn't a nice person to be around and and um i had no limits and no boundaries but i didn't have an addiction and this is the, this is one of the key messages i'm trying to get across to people is that i had uh, I, I suffered from substance abuse um i could do it or i could not do it um when i did it i never knew when to stop but i didn't do it right. all the time it didn't control me i controlled it but i was out of control when i when i took it so and that's a key thing like i could just start smoking and stop smoking i could just smoke weed for a weekend and then stop it and never do it ever again um but it's when i did it it's what happened when i did it and that was the mm. You know, my demons would come out, it would control me, it would take over my life, and I had no limits or boundaries. So 
all the way up to the point of me being found in that field, you know, just before that, I'd, um, my partner at the time had found out that I cheated on her with several girls and I literally drove to Leeds and then that was, that was what happened. And a lot of people were like, oh, you know, mm. and he just tried to kill himself. Like, that's pathetic. And it's like, it was 10 years worth of absolute bullshit, you know, of, 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 of being homeless, of, of being sectioned, of being in care and abused and not having, you know, stable family, functional lifestyle and all that stuff, you know, it, it, it was trauma after trauma after trauma to the point where, um, you know, my friend, after I'd been found in the field, had said, you know, he didn't want to be found. This was the end. You know, he, he didn't right. yeah. cry for help. This wasn't a cry wolf scenario. He wasn't meant to be found. You know, I hid in the trees. The police had to find it, get a helicopter and triangulate my last text message to try and find me. You know, it was quite a dramatic event. And obviously I, I didn't witness any of this, but I've heard stories from the police and from the nurses in the hospital. And, you know, I turned up to hospital and my skin was completely black because I'd been sucking on it for 16 hours, nearly 16 hours, I think it was. Um, so, yeah, and and it, 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 some of it was self-inflicted. You know, I made decisions to drink and take drugs and go abroad and do the most stupid things like taking my claws off and... When I went out of the week, setting mm. fire to my stuff and, you know, running up and down motorways naked and all the things that I used to do, like absolute idiot. Luckily, there was no YouTube around when, when I was doing this because <laughs> gone videos, my friends would have gotten me doing absolute dumb, stupid stuff. Um, mm. But yeah, it was, that was the point. And I mean, and I woke up on that bed covered in tubes and I said to the nurse, I shouted fuck really loud and like knelt up and like, what on earth is this? And... You know, she sat down and she explained a few things to me about what happened and how I was found and my dad not recognising me because um, because of the colour of my skin and all this kind of stuff. Um, and it was just how I never... I, I just thought, you know what? In fact, it was my friend that made a comment about... He said, you might as well stop doing it because you're not very good at it. Um, it was right. <laughs> you know, I wasn't very good at it. I wasn't very good at being self-destructive, even though I tried mm. hard and... Um, I just decided that I was going to focus all that energy into something that would have positive outcomes. And obviously I decided to leave the country and go to Australia and go try and make a new life for myself. And obviously that's where the idea of the Real Jumper Project came into play. Hmm. I want to ask you about the food thing, of course, but what was the overriding feeling during that time? Can you even remember? Was it anger? Was it fear? Like, how did you feel when you were doing all that stuff? Well, this is another thing that comes to kind of fruition with regards to the autism and the spectrum stuff is that it was just an adventure for me. You know, I didn't have any attached to it and it was only recognized in the last couple of years, the reasons why. Um, I didn't have fear. You know, I got abducted by paedophiles. I was homeless and slept with drug dealers. And, you know, I got found by police in uh, drug barons' houses and stuff, even as a child. I mean, this is like a 10, 11, 12 year old kid. And no, it didn't. I didn't have any fear. Um, I had an emotional charge in my chest, which is always mm. kind of, you know, the adrenaline rush, the flight or fight response that happened. Mm. But other than that physical feeling, there was no emotion attached to it. And I think the worst thing about it was, and again, this is something that wasn't picked up on. When I used to come back home, I'll get bought back by the police, especially to my father's house, who uh, I had a very, very uh, uh, different relationship with. Uh, I would tell him what had happened. So I'd say, oh, Dad, I um, I was at school and uh, I collected some money off my friends and I ended up getting on a bus to Huddersfield and then I got a train to Manchester 
and then I met these homeless guys and they took me to this house and then the police found me and it was this drug dealer's house and I was upstairs in the bathroom eating sausage and chips on the floor um, and he gave me this massive bag of sweets um, and the police took it off me because it was all stolen goods. Uh, mm. They took me to the police station and then the police brought me back home and my dad were just like, it's like you've just reenacted a scene from the bill and nobody <laughs> believed it. Said, and, and I was like, and it's because the way that I said it, because I could disassociate myself with that person who just, right. because it was, a, you know, I didn't sit there and cry. I just told it like it was a story. And no one, mm. it's like the stage is where it's like, well, it doesn't fucking matter what I do. What, I might as well just do anything, who cares? And I'll just tell people anything I want because it doesn't matter. Uh, no one believes wow. it doesn't matter what I do. And I mean, I was doing things like taking out bank loans one weekend and then disappearing to Thailand for eight days with no return flight and just blowing 5,000 pounds in a weekend on drugs and girls and hotels and the most stupid random things like elephant rides and taking the most insane amount of uh, drugs and you know, and I'd come back and tell people stories and I was like, no, that didn't happen. You're making it up. And I was like, all right, fine. I made it up. I'll just tell you something else. You know, and it, so it was difficult. Wow. Get across. Maybe they were all cries for help, maybe, um, you know, inadvertently. And no Were you aware of what you were doing and why you were doing it at the time? Was it like, the, uh, was there a drive behind it? When you were doing it, were you thinking, yeah, this is cool. I'm doing this to sate myself. I'm doing this to fulfill myself. Or was it just... Yeah, was it? Was there much thinking going on? Was there much awareness at the time? I mean, I've always had the capacity to know the difference between right and wrong. I've always been yeah. quite streetwise, even from a young kid. Um, and even now, talking about some of the things that I did, I remember the first time I ran away, and the only feeling I had was that emotional charge in my chest of like I was about to do something, but it was just excitement, and I never knew what was going to happen. Right. It was like I was craving structure and stability by creating chaos which is like mm. the beautiful irony of, and, and a lot of children misbehave and, and throw tantrums. And I, I think to myself, they just want a bit of structure and a bit of calmness and a bit of consistency in their lives because I have it with my son now. He lives with his mother and I see him every weekend. And if I'm mm. late, I pick him up at 10, 10 minutes past three on a Friday and take him for the weekend. If I'm five minutes late, you can tell the difference in his behavior that entire weekend because I've affected his stability, you know, and, and, and it's even just little things like that. Well, I was wow. I was having all sorts of shit happen to me, um, so no wonder it got to the kind of yeah. you know my adulthood, and uh, I was absolutely all over the place because I'd never had it. Um, nobody had ever realised that's what I was craving, and even though I managed to find it now within myself, it's taken me nearly twenty five years to get here. But it seems to me there was always a brilliant person in there, but now you're just channeling the energy into goodness. And like every time, you know, just from reading that LinkedIn post, it's like you seem like you're in a desperate rush to to do all this stuff, to make a positive impact as quickly as possible. You know, like every moment counts. Absolutely. And a lot of people say that is like, you know, people struggle to keep up with me. Um, I set out to feed the world when I... <laughs> out to feed Leeds or West Yorkshire or, you know, feed my street. I said, I'm going to feed the world. Um, I have global aspirations. I believe that I can be a catalyst for global change. I see things and I see the world differently to maybe a lot of other people do. Uh, maybe there's a lot of people that do see the world like me and, and probably don't have the, the voice or the public figure that I do. Um, in respect to the um, to the access that I've got to the general public, because I'm constantly, obviously, feeding them, and I've always, you know, been quite vocal on our social media posts. So I've got a go quite a good interaction with the general public, and you know, I, I truly believe that I am going to feed the world and change the way that our food system works in this world. 
And it's because I've got these, I mean, it may never happen, but I'm never going to stop believing that I can't do it. Yeah. I also empower and inspire people around me to think the same. And they do. And when they come here and they're the part of the project, everybody believes that they're on this path, this incredible journey. And um, it is incredible. It's, it's incredible what it's achieved. But yeah, I, I want to do it yesterday. Um, you know, I, yeah, you want to get it all done. You know, look what happened at COVID. Um, COVID happened, homelessness disappeared in the UK. And then now it's back again, even worse than ever before. And I'm like, yeah, we have the power to stop these things. So why are they still happening? Why are the charities getting funding to deal with it when we just stopped it overnight? <laughs> you know, if we've got the capacity, mm. let's do it. Why do we constantly keep having it? And that's the thing that I struggle with is like, these things can be dealt with, I believe, fairly easily, but they're drawn out by... Yeah, I mean, look at... Yeah, look at, look at, in this day and age, the mind boggles in this day and age that we still can't feed everybody. It's ridiculous. But I think part of the problem is just apathy. Like, people detach themselves from the problem. Like, we moan about politicians, for example, but what are we actually doing? What activism are we getting involved in? You know, the, the layman in the street. You're getting involved. You're, you're saying, I can directly affect this. But I want to ask you, like, so I want to delve into that much more for, with the time you have. But, um... Tell me about that point then. You found yourself in hospital with the tubes in you. How how did all of this come out of that point? Well, they just let me out of hospital. <laughs> it was just like, <laughs> you know, thinking back now, I just wanted to leave. And it's quite funny to think what I'd just done and the journey that I just had to lead me to that. Just, mm. oh. So, I don't... Maybe I've always had it in me. I mean... When I was about, were you were you a trained chef? To, uh, were you a trained chef at that point? Yeah, I'd been a trained chef since two thousand and five. So, okay, five years. Yeah, when I was a child, I used to run around with this kid called Tyrone, and we used to play out like kids used to do in the nineties, where you know you'd play on the streets and you know you wait till the street lamps come on before it get dark, or your parents would shout you to come in, and we just used to wander around together, and like kids used to do um, before mobile technology. Um, mm. And he used to say to me all the time that I had a gift. Now, we joked that uh, it was a gift with girls, that, you know, girls would fancy me as a kid and, you know, I was mm. girls and he didn't. And he used to say I had a gift. But thinking back now, this was like, what, 25, 30 years ago, um, I, I think he was onto something even then. I always had this capacity to um, bring people around me, even from a very early age, whether I was the class clown or whether I was doing something stupid, I always had this capacity to engage people. And um, I think when I woke up in that bed, I think there wasn't an epiphany moment, and I'm not going to try and preach that that was that you know there was a light at the end of the tunnel kind of thing. That didn't happen at all. I've messed up and made mistakes even in the past 10 years, but what I've not done is allowed myself to go back to those places that led me to being in that bed. So when I've made these mistakes, I've rectified them, I've confronted them, I've worked on myself, I've tried not to repeat them. I've, you know, I've been the better person by either apologising or admitting I'm wrong or allowing the other person to, to speak, to, 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 to be emotional and all the things that I just didn't do prior to that. And there's work on myself and I had no idea how I was going to get here. Um, but I knew that I had to focus on one, myself, being a better person and secondly, about how I was going to, channel this energy into something with a positive outcome. Now I've had jobs left, right and center all over the world. And most people I've worked for are bloody assholes. And I just never, ever, ever 
was capable of working for somebody else ever. Because if somebody tells me what to do, I was it, or I just say no, walk out, and they're like, "Oh, you're going to lose your job," and it's like, "I'll get another one. It's fine." <laughs> you know, I just didn't care. Um, We're kindred spirits in that respect. <laughs> <laughs> and um, obviously, starting something and being the founder of it, I could I could channel my passions and energy into something with positive outcomes. It then took off big time. And I got caught up in it because I'd still not worked on myself properly. And there was quite a lot of media attention around about 2015, 2016, which is a couple of years after the project. And I got massive mm. caught up in it and my ego exploded. And I thought, I am the fucking dog's bollocks. You know, I am. Mm. Look at me, feed noise people, look how great I am. But it still wasn't, I'd still not you know, done enough on myself um, to become the person that I am today. And so I don't think it was a single thing that you can put your finger on and say, this is what, this is what happened. It was just a series of events after that where I had to consciously focus on not getting back to that, where I was because um, it just wasn't fun anymore. It just wasn't, you know, it, yeah. it was like, it's just not even funny now. It's not, um, I was losing people. I was hurting people. I was hurting myself and I just got fed up and I needed to find something. And obviously school, was pointless. Um, I came out with 10 GCSEs, but I only went to school for about a year and a half. Um, but I knew I was bright and I knew I could, you know, uh, do anything that I put my mind to, but I just couldn't find anything. And so obviously food, I was in food, I was in catering and um, I was all right. I was good at it. And then I got better at it. And then it's, and then I started obviously learning about food waste and education, all that kind of stuff. And it just, you know, everything was a series of events that led me on to the next part of the journey that obviously then, exploded and, uh, and and eventually then led me on to the next part and that's what it was it was just a series of those events and i'm i'm a massive fan of queens of stone age one of their biggest songs is called go with the floor and i just mm. use that as a motto of like i will go with the floor and take every opportunity and um i was i grew up with eminem so i listened to a lot of his you know his, his, his life works and you know i i always compared myself to somebody like him who was like i was going to you know the eight mile song where it's if you had one shot, one opportunity, what would you do kind of thing? And I just thought, I'm going to take every opportunity that I get from now on and just see, just say yes and, and just see what happens kind of thing. But, and then obviously once I was doing these things, you start to pick up on, a, oh, that's not quite right or I'm, I'm not doing this properly or this still affects me. And then I had to go down therapy and then I had to have a PTSD therapy and then I had to do uh, all sorts of other things to work on myself, relationship work, all that, things that I would never have done before because... I just didn't know how. I didn't have a role model. I didn't have yeah. parents. I thought it was okay to beat women up. I thought it was okay. To, mm. I thought it was okay to lie and cheat and manipulate people. I thought it was okay to steal money and all these things that I grew up witnessing. Um, I didn't know any different. And I've literally had to learn how to be uh, a human again um, myself through you know, all the things that I've done in the last 10 years. It doesn't sound like you're going with the flow. It sounds like you've, you've diverted the flow in some way, you know, to, you, you've sort of, um, you've, you've, you've diverted the flow to your will to do something. Your new drug is kindness. And, you know, you're, you're, you're pointing yourself outwards towards the world in such a positive way. Is there a day, you've, you've talked about trauma therapy and marriage counselling, all that sort of stuff. Is there a day, any other daily practices that you do to, you know, to, because it is a daily practice for you, right? To be clean, to be, to live your life in a positive way. It's not something that yeah. you do, it's just a switch it goes off i mean you must still have those desires at times the darker yeah. desires as we all do 
Well, one of the things that I've spoken to people about off the back of the LinkedIn post is sobriety. And I've had a lot of mm. people message me saying, no, congratulations on the sobriety. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not sober. And I was like, what do you mean? Mm. I didn't have an addiction. I, I had a substance, I, you know, I suffered from substance abuse. I, I was intoxicated and got myself into some horrendous situations. Um, but I have chosen to drink since then. But the difference now is I don't have any demons. It doesn't control me. I can choose when to stop. I have much more control over it than I ever have done. And I just choose not to have drugs whatsoever because I don't like the fact of what it does to my body once I do those things on my mind. Mm. But with alcohol, I've not, you know, I've not stopped whatsoever. Um, and I think that's the thing is like I am now in control. Um, and I think that's a very, very powerful thing. And I've actually spoken to a few people who have said, you know, you're completely right. I've been on a path of sobriety. Somebody mentioned to me that how many hours they've gone without drinking. And it was like tens of thousands of hours that this person had gone through. It was years. And I was like, mm. I don't think that's a good thing. And they were like, why? Because it still controls you. You know, you still know to right. hour when you last had a drink. Um, imagine if it just didn't have that power or control over you. You know, so mm. I've, I've really, really worked on... Um, uh, uh, being in control of my mind and, uh, you know, things like centering myself and um, stepping back. I think that's one of the most crucial things that we can do as human beings because we are so easily, especially in the world of social media, to just jump on and react quickly when we see something we don't like or disagree with and we create these divisions and these, um, these, spec these you know, polarised spectrums where... You know, you either voted Remain or Brexit or you support Black Lives Matter or you don't. It's like, that's just not how the world is. It's like, we have different so true. opinions. But sometimes... But we've got to get on still, right? Yeah. <laughs> Even though we've got different opinions. Step back, accept that somebody's got a difference in opinion of you. If it's your turn to say your opinion, so what? Do it. But if not, the world's still going to revolve. It doesn't revolve around mm. opinion. And um, you're not right. Uh, you know, that couldn't agree more. This is where all the problems lie at the moment. This polarization and, and shouting down the opposition. And it's and you know what? I've travelled the world. I've worked in Australia. I've uh, travelled across Asia, Europe, and you know, pretty much just over a, a third of the world. I've probably travelled around, and it seems to be. And, and I'm 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 saying this with a, an educated opinion that people in the UK are very immature when it comes to debating. Um, you travel the world and you see people from Japan and from Europe and they have a much more mature capacity to debate and to have um, differences but still get on with what mm. in comparison to what we're like. Okay. So you see mm. people abroad and they act like animals uh, in general and you just don't really see that from other, other uh, people in other countries, especially when I was travelling around with like... Um, Europeans and and the South Asians across Australia, it always seemed to be there's British people that just couldn't uh, have the capacity to to not have these like polarized opinions and then create tension. And you know, and I think if you, you can see it now, look what's happened off the back of the referendum and the way that it acts, even from a government level all the way down to a, a street level, we just lack this maturity to be able to just step back and go, okay, there's things there that you you know, I agree with, there's things that I don't agree with. So how are we going to resolve this? How are we going to meet in the middle? How are we going to come to a conclusion where we don't just fall out with one another? And I think that's something that I've worked on as an individual is um, I, I believe that I have an opinion. Uh, I obviously have an ego. Um, I think most people that are in my position who are CEOs or leaders or founders do have an ego. Um, but it's how I manage that ego. And it's not by 
making everybody think that I'm right or that I should be listened to. It's I think it's, it's about listening as well. And um, I've taken some key steps in not only with the therapy and the recovery stuff is actually stopping and listening and, you know, and, and, and taking into consideration other people's opinions because it's fine saying I'm going to feed the world, but there's a lot of people in that world that have got a lot of different views on that. And um, I've got to take that into consideration. Whereas before I was just like, nope, you either do what I say or, you know, go away. Um, and I've had to learn to not do that. So I guess, you know, just there's, there's... I think I think you're sort of just describing where the world is at right now. And I think that's absolutely the, the healthy attitude that people are going to have different opinions. But we're not moving forward at the moment, are we? We're, we're, we're not moving forward on so many big issues because... And, and as you said, social media fuels this because you can hide behind social media and say things that you'd never say to somebody's face. I know, and I don't think that um, those people are actually saying that, like they actually believe in it either. I think sometimes... Right. Yeah, uh, they want to identify with something. Yeah, or you must, you know, you, you've got a, a European flag as your profile picture, therefore you must be a Remainer, therefore I have pigeonholed you into this box. And no right. matter <laughs> I am going to disagree with you because you are a Remainer or you're a Brexiteer. And it's like, you know, obviously because that's the key thing that's happened in our lifetime, that's divided us so much. And you see people, I mean, I've had some incredible conversations with um, uh, Tory uh, members. Um, I'm not affiliated with any party myself, but, you know, I wouldn't necessarily align myself with uh, conservative values, but I've had some incredible conversations and I've actually gone away and gone, bloody hell, they've actually got a point and uh, that, that makes sense. But, yeah. you know, and, and but you know, if you don't vote Tory or you don't uh, are a member of the party, then that's it. You're not allowed to agree with anything they say or do. And it's like, <laughs> Some things that there, you know, and then it's the same with like Labour. You know, I probably am more aligned with the Green Party slash left wing Labour. Um, but I, I, I follow these parties and I'm going, there's some things that I just don't think are right. I don't agree with what you're saying, but it's like you tie yourself to this colour, this, this, map, mm. and that is it. And it's just, it's the same thing with like, look at what happened with Black Lives Matters, and you know, that caused global uh, division. Either, you know, you were a, uh, a woke snowflake or you were a racist. And it was, mm, mm. No, that's not true. Like, I share opinions about what happened and I agree with racial injustice and the fact that we should be doing more about it. But I don't agree with looting and other things. And, 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 and you know, I... And, and, yeah. But it's more nuanced than the simple boxes that we get yeah, forced into. But we're not allowed. It's like you're not allowed. You've got, mm. got to stick with, you know, what the uh, the extremist viewpoint is of, of, the, of the matter at the time. And I just think we're immature when it comes to stuff like that. And um, I just decided that I wasn't going to be like that um, with myself. And I think it's helped. I think it's helped myself as a father. I think it's helped me in relationships. You know, I've managed to retain a relationship, whereas I used to be in and out of relationships and it just doesn't matter. You know, a lot of my exes would probably, if you spoke to him, would probably say he never cared um, because I just had that kind of attitude. I did care. I just struggled to show how I cared. But if someone said, oh, that's it, it's over, I'd be like, okay, and then just leave. And it's like, and I'm like, well, why are you not upset? Or it's like, well, because you've said it's over, so it's over. And, you know, I never fought for it or anything like that. Whereas now I've come to learn about how to um, appreciate the other person, how to love the other person, how to be a better father, because I, I, I struggled with my children massively. You know, I never wanted to have children. Um, I even mm -hmm. touched my son when he was when he was younger uh, because I struggled with touch. And now, you know, I, I hug both my son and my daughter and tell them I love them every single day. And, and, and no matter what, I will always do that. And um, I think it's just that, you know, like I said, it's a series of things that it, it, it comes with positive um, repercussions and it becomes 
maybe addictive, I guess, and that's part of the addictive personality that maybe I have, which has attached me to all the negative things in the past. But you know, when you when you I loved back and you know you sat on the sofa during lockdown and watching a Disney film with both your kids laying on you it's just those moments no one can ever take away from you and they're magical and 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 it's it's addictive um and I've worked really really hard to get myself into that situation to be allowed to do those things you're an amazing man and I've got about 30 questions I wanted to ask you from that last uh, from what you just said but what about you touched upon the ego now you you're all about kindness these days what do you think about ego do you embrace the idea of ego or do you think it's something that you ultimately want to do away with is it important uh, I do think it's important yeah I think that we need to have ego I think uh, ego comes with negative connotations and uh, you've mm. seen as egotistical or you have an inflated ego and all these things are negative but I believe that if you want public figureheads if you want inspirational leaders they, they have to have a form of ego now it just depends mm. on how they act with ego if you know one of the the most influential people on the planet um, for me personally David Attenborough about President Obama uh, these people who did things with dignity um, with kindness they are humble and but they have been world leaders in what they do you know David Attenborough is probably one of the greatest people that's ever walked on this planet given the thing guy. given the things that he has done and but he's got an ego he's got to have an ego he's got to have a, an opinion he's got to have a voice that's louder than others he's got to stand up above the parapet like you mentioned earlier and a be- sense of self of values that sort of stuff yeah but it's about how we manage that ego like i could be an absolute dick mm-hmm. around going look at me i'm the founder of the real Jumper project and i've fed 12 million people like listen to everything that i say or i could go around and try to create spaces to empower people to make them have better lives and to feed people and to give people a living wage and you know give people opportunities um then we then then that they've maybe not had before and that's the way that i can use that power and i feel like you know, you've got people like Lewis Hamilton, for example. I think that he's an incredible human being. I cannot imagine what his social media looks like, given the fact that he's black, um, mm. and and some of the things that he must uh, uh, receive in terms of. Sure. Um, and I'm inspired by him because I think he handles himself really well. I think he may have gone down a little bit of a path and then realised he needed to step back a bit, and then now he's doing things for the good. Um, wow. And you know, and I think that's. It's incredibly powerful, but he has you have to have an ego to do that. Um, but then you've got other people like the Elon Musks of the world, you know, probably inflated egos, you know, probably have to pride in themselves and but are still doing quite good things. And it's and then so ego plays a part, I think, in the world. It has to do. And you know, if you didn't have any of those type of people, who would people look up to? Who would be inspired by? Who would be the next thinkers, the next creators, the next innovators? Where would they get their ideas from? Where would they get their thoughts and feelings from? Because that's what David Attenborough does. You know, he goes on a documentary, shows a fucking turtle with some plastic around his neck, and the next minute the whole world's trying to stop single-use plastic. Um, mm. You know, what an incredible human being to be able to do that. His ego allowed him to do that, and it's not the ego as in, like, the negative. I mean, that's the what it's obviously been attached as, is that you can't have one, but you you have to have these people that are going to go above and beyond um david attenborough opened our eyes to global destruction of climate change and now mm. and the world are doing incredible things about it and i think you've got all different types of egos you've got like the greta thunbergs of the world who has got a very different type of ego um a very very passionate and angry individual who's trying to create change and will go above and beyond to do things um 
in comparison to maybe David Attenborough, who's got maybe a much more compassionate way of dealing with it and a much more humble way of dealing with it. But their egos are both trying to create positive change. Um, so we need these things in the world because the rest of us would just be like robots, wouldn't we? We wouldn't be any different from one another and we wouldn't do anything to benefit ourselves or the planet. Um, and obviously there's negative egos in the world, the Trumps of the world, you know, he's got, he's got an ego. And, uh, you know, I believe that what he does is not necessarily for the positive of the, of the planet or the, or for the, for the people. Um, mm. So yeah, it plays a part. Um, I think if you can recognize it and admit it, like I have, and I, and I always will, I think that's a good place. Awareness. Yeah, absolutely. So mm. I think I've always been classed as a few people who know me probably in the last five years have said that I have, I'm arrogant, but I think it's I'm self-aware. Um, I'm aware of what I'm capable of. I'm aware of my space around me. My head is clearer than ever before. I think I can just stand up and speak, like you mentioned, eloquently and and passionately, honestly. And some people struggle with that, and they see it as arrogance. But you know, and and, and so be it. That's the way that their their opinions formed of it. But you know, I, I believe in myself, and I believe in what I'm trying to achieve. And you know, a lot of people a viewpoint and opinion and so in what a guy in my opinion i was going to I, I want to ask you about what you're trying to achieve in a minute but and i was going to ask you who inspires you and why but the david attenborough answer is brilliant uh, you've <laughs> shone a light on an absolutely incredible individual in terms of um uh, um believing in yourself you must have shat yourself when you went on did the tedx i mean like i've just looked at the video and you come you present so well but and everybody sort of thinks of themselves as you know quite fancies themselves as a tedx speaker at some stage in their life it's almost like you know the apex of of humanity isn't it being asked to do tedx but did you shit yourself so the thing that people don't realize about ted and tedx is that they ask you to prepare your speech at least nine months in advance so wow and they like they go through it with a fine tooth comb mix because obviously there's a topic it was uh anthropocene um okay yep that was the stage in our uh evolution that was the when the world is, is not going to come back um so i think it was mm -hmm. years ago they pinpointed it and it was that was the tipping point of where we how many years ago 80 right okay so anthropocene the actual the actual number itself is is, is tagged so that was the point of when we were destroying and using horses yeah. than we were creating, basically, um, mm -hmm. on, on every level, on every every single level, every platform. Um, wow. Rises to uh, overfishing, to uh, deforestation, you know, all these kind of things. That mm. So 80 years ago, Afropocene was the time where they, I mean, it was slower back then. It's obviously increased recently, but it was, of course. that's the point where they said. So Afropocene was... Um, that was the topic. Um, I did my speech, uh, said it to him nine months in advance, got there on the day. I remember walking around. It was at Warwick University and I walked around the campus maybe three or four times reciting this speech in my head. So all I had to do was memorize it and say it. And I remember I wrote down some bullet points and, and put it on a piece of paper. And I said to the guys, can I go on um, stage and uh, put this next to me and just to look down at it in case I need to refer it as bullet points? And they said, yeah. Mm. And I had to do a, a cold speech. So a completely empty auditorium with this like one bloke in the middle that I couldn't really see who was kind of pre-filming just to see how people looked and then do my speech. And I got on there and I must have done it in about three minutes, a 10 minute speech. And like, <laughs> you can't really, uh, that's not how it should be done. I was like, but I'm speaking to fucking chairs. I was like, I, I, yeah. you know, and this is obviously down to the, 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 the autism and the spectrum things I relate to and engage with people, not bloody chairs. So... Mm. 
when I actually got up to do a speech, I remember it, obviously there's a person there kind of like stood behind the curtain and she's, you know, she's like ushering me in and going, right, you're next up. And then I got onto the stage and you can't see anything except for lights. And I forgot everything, completely forgot everything. And I just said to myself at that point, just before I got to the microphone, this is my opportunity to tell the world my story here. And wow. all I did was, is everything that I had done in chronological order. And again, this goes back to the spectrum thing of, I have an incredible memory. I can remember times and figures and dates and numbers. And I just recited everything that had happened to me in some order. And I've also got this capacity to make people laugh. I've always, I've always had that gift. And there's a few bits in there where people stop and laugh and that mm. just, you know, propelled me onto the next level. And I just thought this is, you know, this is winning. Um, so I, I told him some stories about the- that. Sort of empowered you when you've it, it's, it's yeah. under when you're under pressure like that. If if you get a good response, it gives you so much confidence, doesn't it? Exactly. And I've always been a little bit cheeky and a little bit naughty, and you know, so I I, I did that a little bit in the speech as well. And you know, and and it got a little bit of I think there's a bit of where people started clapping after something that I'd mentioned. But I mean, the TED talk was like 2015. I'd only had the cafe for two years. You know, in wow. we had 126 cafes in seven countries, and I've now fed 13 million people in seven countries worldwide. The figures oh my and the God. Oh, is beyond anything that I spoke about on that TED Talk. So it's incredible that people relate back to me and say it's really amazing. But if they, I mean, I've been invited now to do some global TED uh, Talks um, of like future leaders and innovators and agitators and stuff. And I've been invited, like one of seven people that have potentially been invited. Um, and they're like, what are you going to speak about? And I'm like, I'm not going to tell you what I want to speak about because I know now since then, I have done many speeches across the world. They're from Barcelona, yeah. Eva. I don't prepare for a single speech. I get on stage or I spoke to yourself today, nothing prepared whatsoever. And I can straight off the bat. I can speak because I know my stuff. I'm knowledgeable about my profession. I am autistic, so I can reel off data and stats and figures and numbers. And I'm passionate mm. to know enough about this project and this and the and the issues that the project faces to be able to get my point across to people. And I think I've just become so succinct at doing it over a period of time that um, it's just become natural to me. I can stand in front of thousands of people and just talk uh, to them, engage with them, make them laugh. And, you know, I've received standing ovations from people. I've, I went to the WI in North Yorkshire for their annual uh, meeting in Scarborough. And there was 400 women there of a certain age from the WI. And I got on stage and went, who the bloody hell am I to come on here and tell you guys about waste and, you know, all the other things around um, making jams and chutneys and all this kind of stuff. I said, you guys know it better than I do. And, you know, I stood there for like 30 minutes telling them about the projects. I said, however, you know, these are the things that are going on. And I explained some scenarios and situations about things that had happened on a global food waste level, despite the fact that the WI had a campaign that year to stop food waste. And I told them that their efforts are futile because, it's out of our control unless people want to change and the, the world wants to change. You can have these campaigns as much as you want, but food waste will always exist. So I'm literally telling the WI in their annual meeting that their year-long campaign of trying to stop food waste was an absolute waste of time. And I got a stand innovation at the end and I literally had amazing. women now coming to me who said, I remember that speech that you did and it was absolutely amazing. It's one of the, you know, they had Jermaine Greer and a couple of other people there and they said they don't remember anybody except for myself because I just went up there and spoke <laughs> with honesty and passion about something which is incredibly relative. Every single one of us understands about food and food waste and climate change and all the things that are happening. And I have some kind of 
power to be able to make it very relative um, to the point where people will sit and listen to me and and accept that what I'm saying is probably correct and accurate. Also, you've just said, you've just talked about food waste and how things aren't being done properly. You're probably creating some kind of systemic change because of your creativity and your innovative skills. Yeah. Um, we've already got we've already got the final scene of the film, by the way. Like you're you're on the, you're on stage with the TEDx, the lights shining on you. You're sweating. Your fingers are sweating. Your hands are shaking. You're looking at the list of things for your bullet points, and then all the people in the audience are like, "What the fuck is this guy? You know, why isn't he talking?" <laughs> And then finally, you just you just throw the piece of paper away and you just speak from the heart. Yeah. It's beautiful. We'll probably have to do it differently in the film and literally have to screw the paper up and do it. You know, they want the drink. <laughs> How did, um, where is where is the real junk food project right now? Tell me about the scope of the project and why are people still starving in this world with all the technology and all of the food that we have? Yeah, I think, um, you know, even the David Attenborough's of the world probably can't answer that. I listened to him on the radio this morning and uh, he, he was speaking on Radio 1 to an eight-year-old boy who was about to go to school. Uh, his, his parents were key workers. And uh, the boy said to David Attenborough, what can I do um, to stop climate change? What can I do? And David Attenborough said, you know what? Um, that's a very, very difficult answer to, to a question to answer because um, it's kind of out of our hands. But there's little things that you can do. And the first thing he said was, you can stop wasting food. Now, mm. it was really incredible that I heard him say that because so did millions of other people. And when they hear David Attenborough say it and they think, well, what can I do? Then they go online and they start looking at how do I stop wasting food? And then they come across people like us about what we're doing and the way that we're doing it. So what are you doing and what, what is the way you're doing it? So the concept is we intercept surplus food. Surplus food is food that would have gone to waste. It could be accidental damage, past best before. It could be in date. It could just be completely surplus to requirements. We get it. Supermarket stuff generally. No, not necessarily. We've got 1,300 suppliers at any one point. We get from farm wow. food banks to hospitality to catering to wholesale to retail, you name it. Um, supermarkets make up a, a large majority of it. Um, and But we, we are, you know, we, we will quite happily take food from absolutely anywhere. If it's not edible, it goes onto our compost, into our community garden, or into our bins. Nice. Out of. If it is edible, we'll feed it to people. And the interesting thing about it, the model that we use to feed people is called pay as you feel. So you can give money, time, or skills in exchange for food. So that basically means that you can come and get some food off us, and you can literally walk out the door if you choose, and nobody's going to ask anything otherwise, or nobody's going to stop you from doing that. And uh, the model wow. has worked, but it is not sustainable. It's not... It's not a money-making enterprise. It was never designed to make profit. It was designed to create value, value of food and value of people. So we create further income streams to support ourselves. So we do weekly boxes. There's 80 customers queuing up outside now in cars, outside the warehouse who are all coming to collect their boxes of food. You can buy a box online for £10 or £5 and then you come down and you collect some food. You probably go away with about 60, 70 quid's worth of food in your car. All would have gone to waste and all of them are not judged. There's no means test. So you could be rich, black, gay, straight, white, doesn't make a difference. Uh, we don't care. Um, and those people can support the project and they can also feel like they're contributing to the bigger picture of stopping food waste, going on, eating it, making meals out of it. So 
the project has been doing that for around seven years. We're going to schools, we do outside catering, we've done weddings, we do all sorts of wonderful and weird things with the food. And this year we think we've finally streamlined to the point where we believe that there are three main objectives we were doing. So one of them is redistributing food across the country to other projects. Another one is creating hubs locally off the back of COVID where we can get these boxes out to people locally that they can collect from their local church or local community centre or local individual, their, you know, their little kind of um, figurehead within the community. Mm. And the next one is catering. So we do page your field cafes, outside catering, weddings, events, you name it. And obviously because that's currently on hold, we're just building the infrastructure to launch uh, as one of the biggest environmental caterers in the country using surplus food, volunteers, and equipment and materials that are being thrown away by the industry to create events from um, uh, hopefully when we come back out of this lockdown. So that's mm. the main things that we're going to be doing this year. We build amazing. The warehouse we've got in Leeds, um, you know, it, can, it does thousands of tons of year uh, of food. And um, hopefully my role will be to open more of these across the country so that we can create further hubs and further catering and further redistribution. Um, so the whole point is that my position now is that I work from home to create strategies for uh, national and international growth, as well as working with international suppliers of food to understand how we can intercept food that's been coming into the country and, and, and manage that on a level that's never been seen before. So we worked with one of the largest uh, frozen food producers um, to redistribute up to 250 pallets of food during lockdown. You know, those type of numbers and figures were things that we were doing in a year and we were doing them in the space of like weeks. So we built the infrastructure. We've got 25 members of staff now all the way from four at the beginning of lockdown. We had about 50 volunteers. It's now about 350, 15,000 square foot warehouse with forklifts and 550 capacity shelving on pallets. Um, you know, at the beginning of the lockdown, we were in a thousand square foot warehouse working war. Um, we don't do that anymore now. So... I can only imagine where you're going to be in three years' time, it's and especially scary. having amplified your your message and your what your your cause yeah, so much over the scary. last few it's weeks. It's scary to think. Uh, well, it's not scary because it needs to happen, but the problem that we have is um, is that people cannot depend on the real junk food project because it's not a sustainable solution. It's an immediate right. answer to an immediate problem. But if we're still here in ten years' time, then we failed. You know, we want to put ourselves out of business. We want a world where there isn't waste and there isn't hunger. And going back to the original question, why are people still going hungry? Well, it's simple. It's simply down to politics. The reason right. we have hunger is politics, because we can eradicate hunger and we can eradicate homelessness with a simple action, which is proven because we did it during lockdown, but we choose not to. And that's the hardest thing that we've got to accept is it's a choice to allow poverty, to allow hunger, to allow food waste. It's a choice. And we are clearly choosing to allow it to happen. And it's the most heart-wrenching uh, way of accepting it but then obviously you can just sit there and go well what's the bloody point but we decided to go out there and go well actually let's create an alternative let's give people a choice let's try and eradicate some of these problems by empowering and influencing people and um I love it. You're actually doing it. You know, as I said, like I can sit on my high horse now and say, you know, keeping the rich rich and the poor poor, you know, keeping the poor in their place, etc. But what, you know, not actually doing anything about it. You're getting on the street and you're doing something about it. Like Marcus Rashford. Um, have you reached out to him? He might be a good a good uh, uh, friend for you. We don't share the same views. Um, okay. Uh, Marcus Rashford is a multi-million pound football player that uh, uses the power of social media to his advantage. And... Mm. Um, 
you know, the things that really riled me with that is that he got on a phone call with Boris Johnson and next minute schools are given hundreds of millions of pounds to feed children. Why did it take a mm. football player to do that? Because we've been campaigning for years and years that this is a problem. There are teachers and people within the education world that have been banging down the doors of government saying children are going hungry during holiday time. Why are we not doing anything about it? And next minute, a multimillionaire footballer puts an Instagram post out and then all of a sudden Boris Johnson just releases millions and millions of pounds to do it. Now, yeah, it's, it's great that's that crazy, it happened. But that's not Marcus Rashford's fault, is it? It's not Marcus Rashford's I mean, fault if you, whatsoever. If you were a multi-million dollar pound footballer, you would you would use that power, wouldn't you? Uh, I would. I would use that power, but I wouldn't go out and uh, do it the way... I mean, the problem with holiday hunger and, and child hunger and uh, those type of things is that... There are also other things that are attached to it that we don't talk about enough. So why are children mm. going hungry? Why are right. uh, um, schools not being able to provide? Why is there a dependency on schools to give extra food? Uh, why do we have food banks in schools? Why do we have food banks altogether? We kind of plaster over the cracks when it comes to problems rather than tackling things at the root cause. Right. Now, if we went back to the root cause of why children are going to school hungry and dealt with those things, then I would be completely on board. But to give us, mm. you know, we had... We had a local authority close to us that had been given part of that money and they went out and bought tons and tons of food and gave a a thousand hampers to children in the schools in in that city. And then they literally skipped and dumped all the food that was left over. Now, we got a lot of it given to us and we had like 3.1 tons of bread, thousands of potatoes, thousands of carrots, you name it. And it was all being thrown away because they'd already done the feeding but they didn't care about the waste element of it. So it's great from a from a public perspective. They see Marcus Strasher campaign and go, it's great, look at him, he's, you know, he's trying to feed children. But I promise you, this time, December, January 21, 22, we'll be still mm. talking about exactly the same problems because we don't mm. deal with it. At Treating the, the symptom rather than the cause. Exactly. And it's great that he's a campaigner for what he does, but... I don't believe that he's campaigning for the right things right now. And I don't believe the problem's going to go away. And I certainly don't believe that Boris Johnson had 136 million just sat there waiting for somebody to ring him up and ask him for it. Um, mm. I wonder where that money came from. Why was it not being released before? Why did it take somebody like Marcus Rashford to encourage him to do that? Why is the government not already making sure that children receive what they need or families receive what they need? There's a bigger, bigger, bigger problem here to talk about. 100%. And um, yeah. I just... I just feel like there's a lot of people that I'd speak to on the ground that campaign passionately about children going hungry and child poverty. And a lot of them felt a little bit kicked in the teeth that somebody of that capacity was able to do these things and get all this attention very, very quickly and get the support from the government within a matter of days, if not weeks. And yet all this time, children were going hungry. And, oh, yeah. and, 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 and it felt like... Why did it take somebody to do that? What What did he have that we didn't have? What did he say that we haven't been shouting about for many, many years now? Um, and like I said to you, it will happen this year. Come December 21, mm. children will go on school holidays. Children will be going hungry. There won't be enough food for them. And it'll take somebody like Marcus Rashford to come out and say it again before the government actually acts on it. Because it happens year mm. on year and we fail to tackle these issues at the root of the problem, which is why we just don't attach ourselves to any issues around poverty. We just say... We are an environmental charity trying to stop food waste. Anybody's welcome to come and get food from us, whether you are poor or not. 
because that way we don't have to focus on the poverty issues. We focus on the environmental issues and we can tackle the poverty issues as a kind of byproduct of what we do whilst obviously trying to tackle global food waste because you can feed all the poor people on the planet, but there will still be food waste. So we said, mm. why don't we separate the two problems, tackle poverty at the root cause and tackle food waste at the root cause and stop intertwining them together? Because what happens is we end up sustaining both of them for them both to exist. We need poor people to feed food waste here, and we need food waste so that we can feed it to poor people. I've heard a stat that um, if you use the amount of money that people spend on dieting products in one year, you could end food poverty. I reckon you could end food poverty. You could feed everybody on the planet, including those that have and don't have, with just waste. <sighs> the natural high. Follow us on Twitter at Natural High Club or go straight to the website, thenaturalhighclub.com. And remember to subscribe to the Natural High podcast through whichever platform you're listening to get every new pod straight to your phone.